1: We are seeing uh, oil prices slump, the worst route uh, in two years here to speak with us about what we can expect going forward and how investors are kind of positioning around this. Uh, from a credit perspective, Sharam Honare, uh, he's partner of Black Gold Capital Management, which oversees $1.2 billion uh, from Houston, Texas, but he joins us from our 1130 studios in New York. Sharam, thank you so much for, for joining us. I want to get your perspective from uh, you know, a credit investor standpoint. As you see oil prices dip lower, what's your biggest concern?
3: Well, I think uh, from our perspective, you know, we've actually had a viewpoint that uh, the commodity would be range-bound, 40 to 60 dollars. Uh, you know, we invest up and down the capital structure of energy companies, and and from that perspective, the you know, the daily swings in, in oil prices don't really impact our credits uh, as much as they probably did when oil went from 110, uh, you know, to 26 dollars a barrel. Uh, as we've seen, uh, you know, after kind of this historic dislocation in the in the credit markets, we've obviously seen. Uh, you know, rebound in, in crude prices to about $59 a barrel. Companies have really been focusing on their balance sheets. They've been cutting distributions, uh, selling assets, increasing their efficiencies. Really, those are all credit positive uh, type of actions. So, uh, from our perspective, if you look at the market today, it's obviously very challenging for energy equities in particular. Energy equities were down last year, they're down this year again. Uh, there continues to obviously be a lot of stress. Uh, in the energy uh, arena, but investors at, at this point are really demanding, uh, you know, return on invested capital and that's really forcing companies again to improve their balance sheets and I think that's really a, a positive for credit.
2: What is the collateral to most of this energy credit?
3: Well, it, it depends on obviously the, the type of, of company, but if you're, you're looking at, you know, EMPs, obviously it's the, the assets of the PDP value and oilfield service is a different type of dynamic. Uh, and obviously the midstream, we really like the midstream space that a lot of the infrastructure that's in the ground We really think can't, that can't be replaced.
2: So you're talking about the actual refineries and the pipelines or, or or the assets, you said assets in the ground, so is that the natural gas and the oil in the ground? Just trying
3: to understand. Yeah, it depends on, again, what uh, subsector. If you're looking at the midstream space, we're talking about process and, and gathering. If you're looking at exploration companies, it's really the oil and gas in the ground.
1: So, Sharam, you were saying uh, in a note that you put out earlier that you think that there is an opportunity in offering financing to high-yield companies, speculative-grade companies, uh, that that's within the 100 to $300 million range. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, I think that's really a part of the, the dynamic that's really uh, changed over the last couple of years. Again, if you look at the energy space from 2014 on, obviously you know we had 250 plus bankruptcies in the space. There was really a survivorship bias. Again, companies focused on their balance sheets, but a lot of banks had a tremendous amount of exposure to the energy space and the Office of the Controller Uh, has basically forced a lot of the banks to continue to decrease their exposure. So if, for example, you look at the EMP space right now, companies that are three times plus levered, banks really can't uh, lend to those type of entities. And for folks like us, there's an aspect of the market where I would say 100 to $300 million uh, type of range. There really is a scarcity of capital uh, for those type of companies and we're trying to fill that void. And the beauty, I think, of, of that smaller kind of subset is, you know, you go 300 million above, that's where people have access to the high yield markets or leveraged loan market, but below that, that's not really the case.
1: Are you doing that with direct lending or with uh, bespoke bond offerings? Or
3: yeah, for us, I'll give you an example. I mean, we actually just did a, a, a direct lending deal to a, a company called Atlas uh, Sands in the Permian. It's actually a, a company that was uh, started by uh, Bud Brigham, who's very well known in the energy space. Uh, they put in about 200 million dollars uh, worth of equity. We provided them with a 150 million dollar first lien, and really the success there on our part was, you know, we've. We're based in Houston, we've known Bud and his team for 10, 15 plus years. Uh, they decided to do the deal with us rather than with other folks.
2: So can you tell us what is the interest rate on 150 million that you loan?
3: That particular thing, uh, I cannot actually share that with you. That's kind of a, a private transaction. but it will give
2: us an idea then of what would be the cost to that kind of borrower and what kind of duration are we talking about? Yeah,
3: I think for we're looking at kind of uh, double digit type of returns. that's actually a five year loan uh, for this particular transaction.
1: So first uh, know-
3: lane piece of paper.
1: I thought it was really interesting that you're saying that regulators are still cracking down on banks and, and having them reduce their exposure to energy. Uh, is that continuing today or that was just throughout last year?
3: No, it's actually continuing today. I mean, our offices in Houston, we have bankers coming through all all the time. Uh, you know, They're looking to uh, partner with us uh, to basically liquidate some of the assets so that they just can't hold on their books.
2: At what price level does it become a real problem to maintain these credits or to lend even more money to the industry?
3: Well, I think, look, one of the aspects I think that's really uh, been changing in this industry overall is if you look at, for example, energy equities, they've been underperforming for a decade. I think a lot of investors uh, are also taking a step back. You're seeing it also, You know, New York State Pension uh, here, is suing Exxon and, and the like, and they're actually divesting their assets. So I think that's part of the, the aspect of, of scarcity of capital uh, going mm-hmm. forward where there's a need, uh, there continues to be a need. Bankers stepping back, obviously there's a lot of private equity firms, folks like us that are trying right. to ultimately fill that void in the marketplace.
2: Thanks very much, Uh, Sharam Honari, he is the partner of Black Gold Capital Management, talking about credit and the energy markets.
1: We are broadcasting live from the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Summit at the Washington Hilton in Washington, D.C. It is brought to you by Sage Business Cloud Financials, a powerful cloud accounting solution built on the Salesforce platform to empower businesses to scale without complexity. More at sage.com slash financials. Uh, So we're very lucky to have Katie Koch here with us. She's Global Head of Fundamental Equity Client Portfolio Management at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, Before we sort of dig into what's been going on in the markets, why are you here?
0: Um, So, first of all, thank you so much uh, for having me on the program. Um, We are here, this is the largest gathering uh, ever in the U.S. for small businesses. Um, And we're here because at Goldman Sachs, we think that it is incredibly important to uh, support small businesses as a way to increase the overall economic health of the economy. It's a program that we've had for eight years. We've reached 6,700 businesses. Uh, We're bringing those business owners and entrepreneurs education, um, and we're also giving them
1: uh, connections and access to capital. So, Katie, I, I guess um, it would be good to connect this to mm-hmm. what we're seeing in markets. We're seeing a lot more volatility. Uh, we're seeing the specter for rising interest rates with even yeah. someone from Goldman Sachs asset management predicting that uh, 10-year Treasury yields could go up to 3.5% mm-hmm. uh, in the next six months. Yeah. How, when does this bleed into consu- uh, business, small business confidence? When does right. this bleed
0: into the real economy? Right. So, um, I think we, we should really separate what's happening in markets, which is about volatility um, I would argue that actually volatility needed to normalize. No, no one promised that that was going to be an orderly process. It rare, rarely is. But it is good to get to more normal levels of volatility in markets. Um, and what I would say is that you need to separate that from what you referred to as the real economy. When we look at the markets, they're volatile, yes, but it needs to normalize. When we look at the real economy, it actually continues to be incredibly healthy. Um, and when I'm out there talking to these small business owners, they feel incredibly optimistic about the opportunities set in front of them. And that is anecdotal to these business owners, but actually the um, NFIB, the National Federation for Independent Businesses, came out with some data overnight where they're looking at a, a very broad population of small business owners and asking them the question, What you know? what is your level of optimism and is this a good time to expand businesses? And what, what you see in that da- survey data is that we're at record high levels. Uh, so Main Street is actually roaring in the U.S. That's extremely good news for the economy. It doesn't mean it's going to translate into perfect equity markets. There's going to be ups and downs as we've seen, but if you actually feel pretty good about the underlying economic trajectory here, over time that should be good for risk assets as well.
2: Katie, uh, Mm -hmm. earlier today, I got the chance to speak with one of the attendees here. Um, uh, Debika Sen is the uh, owner and operator of a Classic Tours collection. They're based in Redondo Beach, California. And she told me that one of the things that she has learned from these Goldman Sachs events Mm -hmm. is not just how to operate her business in her industry, Mm -hmm. but how to operate her business in her community. Right. And how she had not necessarily understood that role. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could just maybe twin that with something that Goldman Sachs is doing Mm -hmm. with the online lender, Marcus, Mm -hmm. because one of the points that she made is not everything is a sales call yeah, and (laughs) that it is sometimes difficult to remember that as a small business, the sales cycle can be long and you don't know where that next sale is going to come from.
0: Right. So I think um, when we work with these businesses, I, I, it's great that she has the, learned that from the 10,000 Small Business Program, that she has to be a successful business, but also has to be thoughtful about um, how she interacts and works with the community. And I would say that that is on two levels. The first is, of course, many of these businesses are sourcing from the community for their talent. And so they're hiring locally. And one of when we look at the challenges that these small business owners point to, there's really three main ones. And, and, and the first amongst those is attracting and retaining employees, which they're usually sourcing from the community. And so one of the solutions that we're putting forward in this program is to help people, we train them on how to to find the right talent locally, but then we also think the government should step in and help give, for example, tax credits uh, for people in terms of training employees, because when we invest in employees, we're ultimately investing in the economy. So that's one thing about interacting with the community locally is about hiring. The second thing which you pointed to is about access to credit and capital, which continues to be a major challenge um, for these small business owners. And the regulation that we've had since the financial crisis means that it's actually been more challenging for these small business owners to tap credit and capital, um, because they're often actually having to do that off of a personal balance sheet, and that's become much more restrictive. Credit cards, they're expensive. Yes, Yes, exactly. So really, when you talk to these business owners, their credit cards have been their working capital, right? And so the rates are high, and also we've had less access to credit coming out of the crisis, and that's been a real challenge for people in scaling their businesses. And so connecting it to to what we're trying to do here, we work with a lot of local organizations um, in helping those organizations extend and make loans to small businesses. Uh, because it is about retaining people, and then the other cha- ch- challenge which you brought up is also about access to credit to keep the business going and be able to scale it.
1: So just really quickly, mm-hmm. uh, at what point will treasury yields rise enough that it will become restrictive <laughs> for small businesses to borrow?
0: Yeah, so um, listen, we're. I think it's important to recognize we're coming off of incredibly low rates here. So 3.5%, I, I, I get it, that sounds high to us, but in the context of a long history of the U.S. We've had a lot of small business development at multiples of that. So, I'm actually not that worried about the treasury yields being restrictive for borrowing to small business owners. Going back to capital markets, when we have a backup in yields, obviously that could cause a sell-off, not just in the bond market, but also the equity market. So, that's something to watch as it relates to to capital markets.
2: Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Katie Koch is the Global Head of Fundamental Equity Client Portfolio Management for Goldman Sachs Asset Management, and I want to thank you very much for being here.
4: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
3: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: As you can hear in the background, we are here with more than, uh, well, it seems like 10,000 small businesses. (laughs) One of them uh, joins us now is Sarah Kaus. She is the founder and the chief executive of Swell. That's S-apostrophe. Uh, w e l l and she's described herself as a recovering accountant but uh, now known for her double walled copper coated stainless steel vessels sarah thanks very much for being with us
5: thanks for having me today
2: tell us a little bit about how you started this business i believe thirty thousand dollars and an idea that you wanted to change the way well the way people consume any kind of liquid
5: any kind of beverage you know i had the idea of myself as the customer and then the market from there i thought that the world needed less single-use plastic water bottles and something that looked better and worked better to carry our drinks in
2: now i understand that this really came to you when you were hiking in arizona with your mother
5: that's correct i was drinking out of a water bottle that was single-walled it was hot out My water was hot instantly, and I had this aha moment that if only I could have cold water while I was hiking and something that actually looked beautiful too, I could convert people to really using my product. So, Sarah, we talk a lot
1: about the uh, manufacturing process, where things are made, the whole supply chain. Can you talk us through that from your business and what the challenges have been to scale up your business as you do enter more than 60 different countries?
5: Exactly. I think that's one of the hardest things about scale. You know, if I was making making software or service, I might be able to have product a lot faster. Um, but, but honestly, um, our, our product is made in Asia. Um, the packaging is also made in Asia, and it's put together there, and it's, it's shipped uh, to the U.S. or to the point of distribution in, in as you mentioned, 65 different countries. Um, we also have about 200 different SKUs in stock at any given time, so it really comes down to having a very smart analytical planning team to understanding what colors and sizes are going to be hot in what markets at what time.
2: And I just want to mention that I believe you can spend anywhere from $25 to even $1,500 for one of your vessels, one of your bottles, because if you like the Swarovski uh, Crystals, you could probably get one at Neiman Marcus, I believe.
5: That is correct. That was a special edition that we did where the proceeds went back to charity. We're a mission-driven company, so we work with all different kinds of charities. But I have to say, I was surprised at how popular those $1,500 bottles were.
1: Well, can I ask you just uh, about how quickly trends change and how much?
5: you do have to adjust. I mean, in water bottles, how how much can things change? That's a great question. You know, our original colors, so we've got some core colors, you know, our ocean blue, which was the color I started with, the teakwood bottle that looks like wood. Those are our core bestsellers and they really do make up the bulk of our business. But what our customers love about us is we're always innovating and oftentimes our customers become collectors. They buy the bigger one because it holds a bottle of wine, or they buy the Lily Pulitzer collaboration because it matches their handbag or maybe their sweater. Um, We have found that customers have multiples at home. They take them to work, the gym, to school, and because we're always coming out with something that's on trend or something that our customers really covet, that we can have these collections that come in and out all the time, even though those core bestsellers are really driving the business forward.
2: Now there's some estimates that you're doing at least if not more than a hundred million dollars in sales a year customers include Starbucks Whole Foods J crew but your first customer was the Harvard Business School
5: that's correct I was an alumni and I really was hoping that I would able to convince them to use my bottles and go a little plastic free on campus
2: and they took up your offer
5: yes and even to this day they buy a bottle for every student
2: now That's all great, but there was an Oprah moment that really kind of changed things. Can you tell us about that?
5: Sure, so um, in the early days when I was the only employee, I was also doing PR. So I marched myself to the post office with a bottle in a box and addressed it to Oprah Winfrey, Chicago, Illinois. It made it to her senior editor who actually took the bottle on her family vacation to Peru. She called me and said, I love this thing. It really works. I want to put it in the magazine. And really from there, I think that was the day we turned from a project into a business.
1: So can you talk a little bit about how you got the capital to start with the manufacturing? So we were talking earlier about the challenges of credit for small businesses. So how did you start with that?
5: Uh, well, you know, Ben mentioned that I was a recovering accountant, so I, I really did care a lot in the early days about unit economics. And I used my personal savings, so I was very careful, even though I was making a small salary as an accountant, to always put money away. And it was my nest egg. It was my my future retirement savings that I was able to use to start manufacturing. Um, but my first run of, of product was only 3,000 pieces. Um, I had a very small apartment, and that's where the, the inventory was kept under my kitchen table um and really part of the reason um you know i did raise money in the beginning i was very careful about where the product was going to be sold part of it was for brand and part of it was because i just didn't have very much inventory because i couldn't afford to buy more until i sold that first batch
2: when you op- you opened the boutique i believe in palm beach correct I did. W- what was behind that because you've gone from that single boutique now i know you just did a deal i believe with marriott international and their elements uh hotel chain to put the bottles in the hotel business
5: you know in the early days I wanted to get as close to the customers as I could so having a small store it was a bit of a pop-up store for six months just listening to customers what do they think about the product what colors and and finishes were they looking for but to really scale the business I had to start thinking about those big corporate partners and understanding are they looking for sustainability in the case of Marriott and and, in their elements brand or you know are they really thinking about merchandise in the case of what we're doing with Starbucks so it's, it's great to have those small independent accounts it's really how we built the business I'm still in about 2,000 small stores in the US and they just like the small businesses here at the conference they really are the backbone of our business but to really scale I I wanted to go with some of those bigger brands.
1: Sarah uh, real quick which country have you found to be the most fertile ground outside of the US for your business?
5: Uh, right now it's Canada, if you believe that, um, but some of the countries that we're starting to move into, for example, we're just getting started in Japan, um, they're super interested in design and they love the design that, um, that we have on the bottle. So if, for me, it's a bit of a surprise if, if a country is either looking for us for the sustainability angle, the fashion angle, or even the design angle, everybody seems to have something else that they sort of lean into, um, and luckily as well, we have so many different messages.
1: Sarah Kaus, thank you so much for being with us. Sarah Kaus, Chief Executive Officer of Swell, S-apostrophe, W-E-L-L, talking about how she started that business and grew, uh, grew it to where it is today. talking about financials and financial markets right now, we are seeing uh, some declines across the board in U.S. equity markets. And here to understand uh, sort of how investors ought to be thinking about this volatility and navigating it is Jack Abelin, founding partner and chief investment officer at Crescent Wealth Advisors. Jack, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to get your take on on a key question today, which is, The economic backdrop looks good pretty much. Everybody says that, at least in the short term. Um, At what point is this just a valuation story and how long, if it is, can this continue with stocks just overpriced where they were and uh, needing to reprice a bit more before they seem fair?
6: yeah I, everything that I've seen so far this year, at least related to this volatility, is pretty much technical and valuation related uh, i I took comfort in in seeing that um you know credit conditions uh pretty much remained. Intact throughout the entire downdraft So that suggests to me that you know, this isn't cyclical this isn't anything at least related to the business cycle yet Uh, This is just simply a repricing as you as you described
2: Jack there are you've written that there are three types of reversals, right? There's the uh, Technical which you just kind of alluded to there's the cyclical and then there's the systemic, right? Yeah, okay so when do we know which is which
6: sure so uh, the the uh cyclical it relates to the business cycle for example one of the things i'm a little bit concerned about now is that we're running uh our economy faster than uh our potential gdp growth so we're essentially beating a 2%, race ho- a 2% donkey into a, a 3% or so racehorse. And that we can do for a while um, until we start running out of capacity. One of the things I loved about this recovery, while it was certainly slow, it was really steady and one that we were growing consistently at a potential GDP, which is about 2%. Uh, when, when we start ramping higher than that, then we could see excesses. And then, then what we'll see in a downturn would be things like credit conditions tighten up, maybe as lenders decide that their uh, borrowers uh, are less likely to repay their loans. We may see a, a yield curve inversion. We could see some inflation as we run out of capacity for either production, for labor. Uh, we're already starting to see a little of that in trucking. Uh, and so those are the clues we would be looking for to say, you know what, this is now a cyclical downturn, one that typically... Uh, lasts a few years, not just a couple of days.
1: So, uh, Jack, uh, one thing that a lot of people have been saying has driven the sell-off in equities has been the increase in benchmark U.S. Treasury yields. Uh, Goldman Sachs Asset Management came out overnight and was talking about seeing that yield go to three and a half percent within the next six months. Do you agree?
6: Yeah, unfortunately, I don't know. I don't know about timing. But I do agree. I mean, if you think about stocks and bonds, they're just generally competing for for capital. Um, if you you know you want steady income with low uh, risk, you want. Typically gravitate to bonds if you want higher return expectations with a uh, little more risk. Then you'd go to equities. And since 2009, um, bonds have been tugging, you know, tugging at this tug of war against equities with one arm tied behind its back because yields were just held artificially low. Uh, one of the ways I look at that is historically, the 10-year Treasury yield tends to track nominal GDP. Nominal GDP right now is 4%. Ten-year Treasury is 2.8, so there is some more room uh, for um, yields to rise, and as a result of that, equities have been winning that tug-of-war, and is, and has com, have commanded a premium that they would normally not enjoy if yields were higher.
2: Jack, uh, you got any? How much cash do you have on hand for uh, for your investors?
6: Um, we have not raised cash during this uh, downturn, largely because, again, we looked at it as more of a, a technical bump uh, than anything more serious than that. So we were pretty fully invested going into 2018, Pim, and, like I said, did use this as an excuse to maybe get some sideline cash in, uh, but not an excuse to get out of the market.
1: So are you actually buying now?
6: Yeah. When, if we have opportunity to buy, we will. Uh, So not yet. So in other words,
1: you don't see it having come already.
6: No, I I think that, you know, I will use these downdrafts as buying opportunities because, like I said, I'm not seeing much follow through to any other markets yet. Uh, And if you now strip away um, valuations and look at them, look at the market relative to um, the earnings and yield, uh, I'm sorry, earnings and dividends, the market's about 5% overvalued. I mean, to me, that's statistical noise. Uh, we're actually back to fair value, whereas we started the first couple of days of the year between 15 and 20% overvalued.
2: Jack, what kind of stocks would get you interested in buying? Uh, like Apple or Facebook or what kind of stocks?
6: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I'm not a stock picker, but I would say that, you know, if you're looking to to trade, certainly that's where the action is uh, on the the downside and, of course, on the upside. Um, So uh, as a long-term investment, I would say as uh, economic uh, growth, Tends to broaden out. Uh, these large cap growth companies will kind of fall behind some of the more broader names like financials uh, and uh, industrials and basic materials. Um, so from a sector basis, I would say that probably uh, plays pretty well over the next two, four to six quarters. Uh, but over you know as a, as a trade as a hunch, uh, these large cap growth names like the you know Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and so forth are are interesting plays.
2: All right. I'm going to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much for joining us. Jack Ablin is the founding partner and the chief investment officer at Crescent Wealth Advisors.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L
5: Podcast.
2: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim
1: Fox.